The Sports Career Podcast, episode 352. How can self-belief support elite athletes after a career in sports? Sports Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers, and can I say this is the final episode for season eight? I'm going to take about a month off because I always take December off. I'm always, I believe, it's about family, reflection, and all about the next year ahead. And the show will be back in 2024 for season nine, which I'm super excited about. But as always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a certain sector of the sports industry, especially if you have an interest with regards to working with elite athletes and how athletes can get support after their career in professional sport. So I hope today's episode can support your sports career development and interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Annie Vernon who is a two-time Olympian and competed for Team GB in rowing at the 2008 and 2012 Olympics. She is award-winning author of a book called Mind Games, a corporate speaker and currently the communications and marketing manager at LAPS. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Annie as a podcast special guest on the show where she will share her sports career journey and explain why self-belief is vital with regards to athletes transitioning after professional sport. Have a listen and enjoy. Annie, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? It started a long, long time ago now because I'm absolutely ancient. So um, the thing is, when did anyone's sports career start? Every single elite athlete in the world will tell you, I just love being outside. I love messing around with my mates. I was quite competitive. So, you know, no different for me. I grew up in Cornwall, so it was an upbringing very much based on the outside, the seaside, you know, getting in, getting in the sea, getting in the surf, whatever it was. Um, and gradually that morphed into horses for me. And then um, when I got to university, it became rowing. Obviously, I know there's no crossover between horses and rowing at all. So I'm aware these are two different skill sets. But yeah, I was always very into sport right from an early age. And then I was just really fortunate. I managed to find this, the one sport that really suited me. Okay, I'm going to go back to your roots in Cornwall. Like from that upbringing, like I've had a few family holidays there. It's so open, it's so beautiful. How did that outside environment compared to, let's say, city life now of your upbringing influence you end up being a rower? I'm just curious on that side. Yeah, I mean, I guess I did have, I feel like I had a really charmed upbringing. I grew up on a, a small family farm. So, you know, growing up on a farm by the sea is probably what most kids dream of. And it, it was as it was as good as it sounds, you know, outdoors, tree houses, um, you know, chasing the cows around the farm with the rest of the family. We grew up in a really tight-knit big family. So it was a lot of messing around, a lot of having fun. Um, and I think anyone who grew up on a farming background, and I don't think this is unique to farmers, but I think it is unique of all farmers, is that you do just have a real can-do attitude. 
You know, if you've got a problem on the farm, you can't call in technical support. You can't call in IT. You can't, you can't take a day off. You just have to get on with it, you know, and it is all hands to the pump. Um, but I think that, you know, those values have definitely informed the rest of my life in that, if you, you know, if there's a, a problem, you just have to come up with a solution yourself. No one is necessarily going to be there to help you. Um, and also that you know, work is there 20 hours a day, seven days a week for most farmers. And thankfully, I, I don't have to work all day, every day. But certainly those th- those values of hard work, resourcefulness and independence have definitely informed my behaviour for the rest of my life. May I ask who actually ran the farm? Was it the whole family? Was it literally a all hands on deck? So after school, you had to do some sort of chores, shall we say? I, I, sorry to go through this angle, but I find this really interesting because, I, like you said, it teaches you the life lessons. But I'm really curious of who was running it. And I'm just curious from how the family were, were a team as well, looking back. I, I think a lot of fam- farming families do you know, view their kids as free labour, you know, to... And obviously, you know, it's important to work together as a family, but equally there is a point where kids need to be kids and they need to play and they need to do their homework and priorities, their studies. And, you know, my family, well, my parents are always very clear that we're adults, that we've chosen this life. And and although obviously you have to help out all the time, particularly with the really busy times of the season. uh, So my my family was a a dairy, my family farm was a dairy farm. So the carving was really busy silage was really busy harvest was really busy but it wasn't like we were up doing two hours on the tractors before school um but unfortunately there, there are a lot of farming kids that do but they my my parents were always really keen on you know you, you're here to study you're here to to play and here to mess around because you're your children um so my my dad was the farmer my mum obviously farmed as well but she also uh worked in education and now my brother and his wife are the farmers Oh, okay. I'm going to now move forward when you get to university now, because I'd love to, I'm curious of you being a rower. Like, when does it all start with the rowing journey? Can you just paint the pictures to the listeners and and also being an elite rower and a two-time Olympian? Can you just sort of break that down for the listeners as well, please? Sure. So I had rowed a little bit before I went to university. So when I I grew, like I said, I grew up in a, a rural area. So the point at which you pass a driving test, you know, you feel like you are, you can spread your wings and fly because you, you know, without a car, it's really hard to get around. So I passed my driving test and thought, right, I just want to just do something new. You know, it's, it's pretty, pretty small community. Everyone knew each other. So I thought, I just want to do something new, meet some new friends, take up a new sport. Um, and my parents had some friends on the south coast of Cornwall so we lived on the north coast and they lived on the south coast who ran a rowing club in their little town when I say town I mean really small village but luckily with a with an estuary river through running through it so a tidal river um and they said why don't you try rowing you know it's only a 40 minute drive which in, <laughs> in Cornwall isn't that far it's only a 40 minute drive go down there meet some new friends and just you know relaunch yourself a bit so I started going down once a week and just got right into it you know I was just bitten by the bug straight away I loved the fact it was outdoors I loved the fact it was on the water the estuary that the rowing club was based at it's a beautiful beautiful river valley which is quite ironic because the places where I rode after that were places like Ely in the Fens in Cambridgeshire and um you know gravel pits near Reading so not beautiful places which one of the reasons I loved it to start with, because you felt like you were, you know, in this beautiful river valley and it was the birds and the wildlife and it was so peaceful. And then, you know, the national um, rowing team is based well, the rowing lake backs onto the Reading to Paddington train line. <laughs> you know, so it's quite a contrast, really, the way it turned out. Um, so they so my parents kind of encouraged me to, to 
try it. And I just loved it. I love the fact it's a team sport, but it's also an individual sport. You know, you have to be able to train on your own, but you also have to be able to train in a team. Um, and I just liked the rowers. You know, rowers have a real kind of get on with it attitude. You know, there's no prima donnas at all. There is no space for an ego. You have to work together and you have to get on. And I, I liked the fact that rowers generally just just got on with it. You know, a lot of a lot of women's sports can be quite catty at times. And I just felt like the, the kind of women who rode were just not the catty kind types at all. They were just quite upfront, quite practical, quite down to earth. And um, and yeah, I just loved it. It also helps that I'm 5'10", which isn't that tall for an international rower, but it's kind of in the right ballpark. It's taller than the average woman. But um, I mean, I would have ideally been six foot, but, you know, I blame my short mother for that. <laughs> can we dig deep as i mentioned before going live with you that like i went to a rowing school ship lake college and i have to say if i went into rowing i probably would have been a cox i'm quite small and i'll be honest i did rowing i did have i, I did rowing a few times i couldn't get the fulfillment should we say but i'm just curious of what was the bug what was that moment or i know that maybe surroundings but i when I mean the bug everybody, I had good friends who competed at Henley who they were up at six in the morning doing two KOGOs. They just love the buzz of trying to beat each other, be accountable. And, and that side I get now, looking back, I'm like, okay, I love that side. But from a performance side, how did you immerse yourself in the sport where it wasn't a hobby? It ended up becoming, in your book, we'll talk about um, mind games, but it became a job. Um, but just explain the bug. Could you go in a bit more depth in what you meant? I think it was really the point at which I started single sculling. So in rowing, you can you can compete in any other any size of a boat from an eight to a four to a pair, so two people or, or one person. And, and some boats you can have two oars, and and sometimes you might have one oar. So and I, you know when you're learning, you generally learn to row in a cox four. So it's four rowers and one one cox, so one small person shouting at you, um, which was fine. But I think when I found single sculling, there is something about just being out there on your own, and you know the boats are, are, are narrower than your hips. The oars, you could put your finger and thumb around. So the oars are very fine and very long. The boats are very narrow and very fine. And, and there's just some that feeling of just skimming along the surface of the water on your own. And, you know, the boat literally goes as fast as you make it. There's no, there's nothing else propelling that boat. There's no wind. You know, there's no engine. There's no other people there to do it for you. It's literally just you. And I think it just becomes so addictive that you... Because also in rowing, it's such a quick feedback loop. It's not like in business where you make a change at a strategic level and you might see the out, the, the return on that investment or the return in your turnover. You might see that months later, you might never see that at all. Whereas in sport, and particularly in endurance sports, you make a tiny change to your technique or a tiny change in the amount of power you're applying to the water. And suddenly your boat, you know, you can either feel it going faster or you see the numbers if you have um, you know, a, 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 a speedometer on it. And just that feeling of, gosh, if I just do this a little bit better, I go a little bit faster. And you think, well, I wonder if I could do it a little bit better again. And I wonder if I come down every day for a week at the end of that week, how much better would I be? And it, you know, it just kind of gets under your skin a bit because the feedback is so immediate. And I'm sure everyone in endurance sport will know how that feels. And you don't get that in a team sport like football or hockey or rugby, because it's just, a, it's a totally different sport. But, um, and I certainly remember, you know, doing evening sessions in the autumn when the water's flat um high tide because like i say it's very tidal down there and you're just skimming along the water totally on your own in the in the gloom just thinking i just wouldn't want to be anywhere else but here um and it you know like any sport it's addictive sorry to interrupt but was that the stepping stone when 
the switch happened going, I want to be the Olympian. When would when was the Olympics or World Championships hinted into your DNA and this is what I want to go from a career path perspective? Yeah, it's interesting because I think as a sporty kid, of course, you never, particularly in those days, these days I feel like there's development pathways for every sport everywhere. You know, I'm mean, not everywhere, but it's a lot more accessible. If you're a, a keen young rugby player, you can see a route into the nearest professional club and then potentially into an age group setup and whatever. Whereas in those days, that you know, sport wasn't professional in the in the main. No sport was professional. So the development pathways didn't exist. But certainly as a kid, I remember I'd watch like the London Marathon, imagine myself doing that. And then I'd watch Wimbledon. I go outside and practice hitting a tennis ball against the wall for an hour. And then I'd watch, um, you know, I'd watch the Olympic Games and I'd imagine myself being Sally Gunnell, you know, running the hurdles. And so you always see, you know, see your heroes on TV and think, oh, I wonder if I could do that. Um, but I don't think you'd ever actually think you can because it feels so remote, doesn't it? Particularly grew up in Cornwall where you're so cut off from everything. Um but but certainly, I think once I started rowing, I loved it. And also in rowing, we have um, we have the indoor rowing machines, which are absolutely huge. And and the handling about indoor rowing machines is they're all the same brand, and they all I mean they're obviously not all totally calibrated, but you can say you know probably to a few seconds accuracy that the score I've got today that that's the score I can compare against anyone. So all rowers will know what their two kilometer ergo, ergo time is, their five kilometer ergo time is, and they can, you know, you can compare that against anyone in the world. And yeah, there'll be might be a few calibration issues, but largely that's, you know, that's set pretty much in stone. So once I got there and I started doing ergo training and comparing my scores against other girls at university, I quite quickly realised, gosh, my scores are really good compared to most people, um, and it's like this benchmark. You know, so I think quite early on, I thought, well, my scores are pretty good, but you don't necessarily, you know, you're focused on your degree and your social life and, you know, enjoying university for the first time. You don't necessarily see a, a pathway through, particularly at that point in Cambridge, there was like a pathway into the boat race crew and nothing else, really. There wasn't like there was a pathway set up into the national team. Just one thing before we carry on with the journey I'm curious of during your time like you said you're getting really good scores did you learn that skill set of like measuring your performance because it's one thing in business I did a triathlon this year and I had to do a 1500 in the in the pool and I was doing like milestones and I was just curious did you add like a did you implement not just goal setting but implementing milestones in your performance you, like you said you, you didn't know you're going to get to the Olympics you visualized it through other sports but from an activity standpoint, were you looking at measuring your performance consciously or unconsciously? I'm just curious of when did that implement into your rowing sort of career, but also performance? I think every sport has different metrics though, don't they? You know, you mentioned triathlon. Actually, triathlon is, is a really easy one to benchmark because you have the three components and they're, you know, that, you know, you can talk about this is my 10K time and that's your 10K time. And yeah, courses might vary or, you know, your average watts on the bike. And again, it will vary based on your course, based on, I guess, your bike and your weight. But fundamentally, it, you know, it is a number that you can shout about. Whereas team sports like tennis, I don't, not sports I'm familiar with, I don't know what net metrics they would use. Um, but I think in Rome, because it's just the indoor rowing machine, just the ergo, it's you know liked it's it's loved and loathed in equal measure because it's such a good training tool but it's you know it's a pretty brutal mistress so so that that's good fun um 
But I think, as you know, particularly I was always quite competitive and you just want to compare yourself, don't you? You know, nature of being competitive is that you seek out opportunities to compare yourself against other people. So I was quite keen to seek out opportunities to say, right, who are the other girls in the university who are pulling good scores? What are their scores? Who are they? Let me go have a look at them, you know, because you just want to just want to find out how good you are. And then if you get that bounce of, gosh, I've only been here a year and actually my scores are OK, then gives you that motivation to keep trying to improve, doesn't it? 100 percent. So can we now paint the picture now to the build up of 2008? Like I'm I'm excited because this is like my childhood of studying, like I said to you before, going live like 2008 and 2012 was when I was studying it from sort of GCC to A level. And I'll just love, I know it could be memory lane for you, but for people listening in, it was such a big period of Great Britain sport of getting the host in 2012. So I'm just curious of from Beijing to London, the build up from your first, like to the first of your Olympic games. I remember actually just talking about 2012 when they announced, you probably remember it was a big, you know, set piece announcement in those days of, because it was, was it us or London or Paris, I think? And It was, yeah. Yeah, it was 2005 and we were at a regatta in Switzerland and everyone was in their hotel rooms with the TV on. You know, everyone was like, you know, not just British athletes, but obviously everyone was fascinated by them. Sat there watching and then they announced London. I remember this roar going up through the hotel as, you know, whatever, 50 members of the British rowing team all shouted and leapt in the air at the same time. felt like the roof was going to lift off, you know. Um but hilariously enough, we just held a regatta on the regatta course that would be used for 2012. So we just had a World Cup there a few weeks prior to the announcement. And the conditions were dreadful. It was like sideways gales and rain for, for three days of the racing. Remember all the other crews came up to us saying, please tell us there's another regatta course somewhere. Please tell us you're not going to do it on that awful crosswind lake. And we're all like, no, nope, it's the crosswind lake, guys. <laughs> you know, See you in 2012. So, yeah, I don't think the other rowers were as happy as we were about it. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I went into the British rowing team and, you know, very much, um, you know, like like most people in those days, quite, you know, wet behind the ears, quite green, really, really impatient to impress coaches and the selectors, really impatient to get better. I think, you know, as a young person, you're not you're not patient. You just want life to come right now. You know, you don't want to play the long game. Whereas now I'm happy to... You know, I'm, I'm, I guess I think in different timescales, but in your 20s, you just want to get on with it. Um, and, and, you know, coaches would say, oh, you know, you just don't have enough experience yet. And I'd kind of it's like be kind of spitting in there. You can't tell me I haven't got any experience. It doesn't mean you're any good. It just means you've done it before, um, which I get, you know, is, is quite an arrogant perspective. But um, I just thought I'm only going to get one shot at this. And if I don't back myself, then I'll never be as good as I can be. So I'm just going to have an incredibly high opinion of myself and believe that I'm good enough to achieve great things. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll look back after and say, oh, yeah, I never quite made it. Never won any medals. Fine. I was I was wrong. But if you go into it thinking, I don't know if I'm quite good enough, then you're never going to be good enough. You know, my view was that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you never back yourself, then you're never going to be that good. Whereas I thought if I go in and just pretend I'm a reigning Olympic champion, and, and train with that level of um, assurance, that's going to be an advantage. And that's just, I guess the things I, what I realised quite early on when I started to you know, race internationally and train at that level, you know, that kind of intense full-time professional athlete level is, you know, getting fitter is really hard. 
you know, making performance gains is really hard. You have to train incredibly hard just to make tiny changes. Whereas changing the quality of your thinking isn't hard. It can happen overnight and you can make massive gains. You know, so I'd be like, of course, like I'm doing the training. It's not like I'm not going to train. I'm doing six hours a day or whatever I was doing. I'm burning thousands of calories every single day. That's all happening. But if I can also make these massive gains in my thinking, that's free speed. That's easy speed. So I think from quite early on, I was really keen on just trying out loads of different ways of thinking, loads of different ways of approaching the sport, talking to my teammates, thinking about racing, everything from the neck up, because I thought this is free speed. And can we go in depth and what you mean? I know what you mean from a mindset. I can see your body language, but for the listener. What did you test from a mindset standpoint, which you said you could instantly change compared to a performance standpoint? I know we're going back in time, but just reflecting, can you do you have any examples of where you experimented in something work and stuck and you went, I'm going to stick to this method or this way of thinking? Yeah, I guess I started to think quite differently. And this is all I mean, this isn't like I would invent this stuff myself. It was all learning from other people. And the, the handy thing about when I was in the rowing team is it was a real purple patch in athletes. You know, we had this, this group of seven women who'd all just come back from the previous Olympic Games with medals. They were all, you know, physically massive and strong. So we had this, you know, huge block of experience and success. You know, so when people talk about the blueprint, you think, well, the blueprint is literally sitting next to me so if I want to know how to win an Olympic medal I can just ask her because she's there so it, as a young athlete gosh what what a privilege to be sharing changing rooms and sharing boats and sharing debrief meetings with you know Sarah Winkless, Catherine Granger, Bex Romero, Debbie Flood, Fran Horton, Elise Laverick you know and suddenly they're all my teammates and and you know you're sharing um, bedrooms on, on training camps with them so that that block of knowledge was incredible and I would absolutely try and be a sponge and learn everything I could but equally there comes a point where you can't just learn you have to do you know and I think you'd look at other people and say wow you know Fran is so professional how she recovers I'm going to recover like her all her kind of off the water stretching and hydration nutrition all that I'm going to do that then I say oh Catherine is so aggressive how she races I really want to race that aggressively and you try and do that. You say, you know, Elise trains really hard. Debbie, like they never take a back step in training. They're like push, push, push every single session, every single day of the week. I need to do that. And then, you know, the months go by and you think, I can't do everything. I can't be good at everything. And I also can't lose sight of what I do. You know, so I think learning from other people it, it is good to a point. But there's a point where you just draw a line and say, that's great. But this is me. This is my identity. So just to break this down, can I break this down a little bit? Could you say that for other athletes, sorry to interrupt, but I think it's important. The first step is to really observe the environment where it's already high performance, because a lot of people reinvent the wheel like it's from somebody external. But actually, you're already, like you said, you're already learning from great athletes and you can model them till you draw the line. That being said, when you draw the line, when did you decide to create your own blueprint relating to your own strengths? That's Sorry to interrupt, but I think this is so cool this conversation but i'd love to hear that yeah exactly and i guess it's i think there's two things that happen the number one you you do take your role models off a pedestal you know but these people aren't goddesses they're just human beings and they get you know incredibly nervous before racing just like everyone does or you know 
I don't know, they might kind of switch off during a training session completely and forget to say anything just like everyone does or, you know, everyone makes stupid mistakes um, because everyone's human. So I think there's a point at which in order to try and beat these people, which is what, what you're trying to do, you're trying to beat people to get selected into the team, you have to see them as as human. Um, but I think... I think you have to, I don't know, I think so much of it is just self-review. You know, what are you learning? What are you trying to learn here? So, so f- for example, after I started rowing with Catherine Granger quite a bit, you know, she's incredibly explosive as an athlete. You know, she's someone who can really kind of hammer out the blocks and get up, get up to get a boat up to speed really quickly, which is such an advantage in a race because rowing's a sport where you face backwards. So you don't want to sit in the pack. You want to sit out front so you can see everyone and you have, you know, clean, flat water. Um, and I'd be thinking, right, gosh, I, you know, I want to do that like Kath- as well as Catherine does. So you try and analyse how she does it. Obviously, there's a physiological thing there and I can't get Catherine's legs. You know, she has her, her power capacity, but there's also a technical element to it and there's a psychological element to it. So that's the bit I think you're trying to model. You know, a, a young tennis player isn't going to be able to serve with the power that Rafael Nadal serves with but like okay so there's a psychological way that he serves and there's a technical way that he serves and those are the bits I think you could model so certainly I would look at the way that Catherine would blast out the start and I would try to do that but then there comes a point where you're like I'm not Catherine and I can't do it as well as she does it so how can I then link trying to aspire to have this standard of, of getting off the blocks really fast with also what I think I'm good at and I think I'm um, generally as an athlete I'd, I was quite an endurance animal so I was pretty good in the second half of the race so I think okay so maybe I'm not going to fly out of the blocks like she does but I can still come out of the blocks much better than perhaps I used to but then I need to gel that in with one of my real strengths which was the second half of the race I love this there's, there's one quote I have to bring into it now relating to your book because it's all about competing and uh, while you have a sip of uh, your drink there's one quote because it's all about competing against yourself and I want to bring it into this part of the conversation. There's a quote in your book where you said, competing against yourself starts with curiosity and drive to see how good you can be against your own standards. So relating to that quote, which is one of my favorite ones, could you reflect that to the build up to 2008 of, did you have mine going on, I'm going to try and compete against other rowers or could you relate to that quote looking back now? I'm curious. Yeah, there's a... There's a lot to go through there, Ed. Um, and I think I was also competing in a different era to now. I think athletes now are much more focused on you know, the, the process, whereas I think back then we were very focused on the outcome. And I particularly was very focused on the outcome. And if I could have my time again, I would have told myself to just enjoy it a bit more and focus on the quality of the performance, the quality of the products you're trying to pull together rather than necessarily the outcome of the race at the end of the day because I think I think it makes you a better athlete I think it makes you um I think it, it, it would make you go faster um but there has to be a balance between the two because your opponents do come and go and and basically I, th- I think anything that gets the most out of you it, it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter if you're you know you stick a photo of your opponent on the bathroom mirror and you know glare at them every morning if that gets the best out of you fine you know if if shutting out the rest of the world makes you a better athlete puts you in a better place fine you know if getting acupuncture from a Chinese acupuncturist once a week if that gets the most out of you 
fine. As long as you're not taking performance enhancing substances and you're not doing anything that's going to damage your health, I don't really care what it is. What we did in Beijing, I think, was to focus too much on our opponents. You know, it was quite a, um, a predictable event. It was the same three crews basically had come first, second, third for the previous few years. So we, you know, we knew who it was going to be and it was a similar personnel as well. So maybe if the event had been a bit more fluid, we wouldn't have had that singular focus on, on the Germans and the Chinese. But because we knew it was going to be us, the Germans, and the Chinese on the podium, almost certainly, it meant I think we focused probably too much on on, on beating them and not enough on just the quality of our, our process. It, it's my opinion, but obviously I can't speak for the rest of the crew or the of course. Um, but one thing with that quote I do love is having your own standards. Like, did you ever throughout your career have a benchmark, not just performance, I just mean a benchmark of the athlete you always wanted to be, despite the results on the podiums? Well, yeah, I did. Yeah, I guess I was. I always wanted to be known as a real tough cookie. You know, I wanted to be known as someone who was kind of hard to beat. And um, I think if, because I'm, you know, I've been following... I've been watching quite a lot of the Rugby World Cup, like I'm sure a lot of people have. And I was thinking, if I was a rugby player, I think I'd be like flanker. You know, I'd just be like in there getting my hands dirty, you know, punching people in the scrum. And, but do you know what I mean? I think I wouldn't, whereas I can think of other members of my team who would have been a winger, you know, they, or they would have been a prop. Whereas I think I would have just been like hard as nails, doing the dirty work, in the rut, you know, not taking a backward step, whatever it was. And I think that was that was my kind of identity as an athlete. I think I, I, I wanted I wanted to be someone who who was was tough and physically pushed themselves because rowing is a sport where you do have to push past your physical boundaries. Um, you have to, you know, figure out where your boundaries are and then enjoy pushing through them. That, that's one thing I want to touch on with rowing. As I said, I didn't do it much at school, but when I learned from my peers at Shipplay, the resilience of during a race. You're exhausted. If you're always watching in a race, every crew's exhausted. May I ask how you stayed resilient during a race and more from staying focused without letting the body, I call crumble, because when you see the body language right at the end, you're so exhausted physically. But how did you stay in the zone throughout a race? And, and I'm just curious how the mental side is just as important than the physical of any race. Yeah, it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there are sports where it just really hurts. You know, and I know that, you know, footballers, rugby players talk about bleep tests and how horrible they are. And I'd be like, yeah, we basically do a bleep test every time we get on an ergo. You know, it's that level of, you know, you push yourself until your legs are full of, um, you know, full of treacle. You've got blood in the back of your throat. You're almost throwing up. You've got spots in front of your eyes. Yeah, you know, your whole body feels like it's going to shut down. It's starting to shake. And that's, you know, that's just like our day job which I look back now and I think, oh, what a what a weird way to live. Um, but, and, it, and it's funny because I think every athlete, people talk about the pain and how you manage the pain, how you overcome the pain. It almost becomes this kind of person in your life and, and you have to have a plan to overcome it. And it doesn't really matter how you do it. You know, so one of my teammates, Anna Watkins, used to say, she said, you know, I just see it as feedback. When it starts to hit me, I just try to say, this is information coming at my brain, telling me how hard I'm working. And I try and kind of logically analyze it to understand if I'm overworking or underworking or whatever, um, which is pretty dis bit dispassionate. But that was her way of processing it. You know, other people, I think, almost have this fear of, 
it's going to hurt so much and I still don't quite know how I'm going to deal with it. And I've heard, you know, I've heard Olympic medalists say that to me. They've said, I never quite came up with a way of overcoming the pain. It was just, it was there. I hated it and it was over. And I was so glad when it was over. You know, for me, I used to, and I think I went through a similar process early in my career, almost, oh, how am I going to manage this, you know, this, this beast that's about to overtake my body? But I then tried to say, okay, this is a bit of a competition. This is like a hand in the flame. If everyone's going to experience this, who can keep their hand in the flame for longest? And I'd almost see it as a, I'm going to stick myself in the pain cave for longer than anyone else. And I'm not saying I was particularly good at managing that than other people, but that was my way of processing it. Is this is almost becomes a competition. Like this is this is the part of the game. How hard can you push yourself into the pain cave and still be able to row well? Because that's the other thing, you know, you can you can absolutely murder yourself and then collapse at halfway, in which case that's totally pointless. You know, you need to be able to deal with the physical pain, but also to row a long stroke, to be relaxed, to be composed, to make strategic decisions in the, in the heat of the battle. So it's not just a physical battle, it's a mental battle. But yeah, that was my way of overcoming it. But I don't think it ever became fun. <laughs> I certainly don't miss it right now. No, but... That's a- I bet. I just want to lastly, with with 2008 and 2012, just looking back from those actual experiences. I know you said earlier that 2008, it was very focused on the the outcome, then in, maybe enjoying the experience. But looking back now of the actual, like the Olympics itself, were any like takeaways you look back going, my goodness, they were great life experiences? Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, any sporty kid dreams of the olympics don't they but the irony is the bit you often dream of is the opening ceremony isn't it it's you know because that's the bit you always watch on tv the athletes parade the opening ceremony whereas when you become an athlete you go through games you realize there's hardly any athletes there it's all coaches and physios you know because as an athlete you're either competing in the next few days in which case you're not going to go or you're competing later in the games in which case you might not be in the village yet so um, you know, I didn't go to either of my opening ceremonies. And when you actually know some of the people, you watch the parade. You're like, these are all coaches. <laughs> I mean, it's not all coach. I'm exaggerating, but there's hardly any athletes who a lot. Most athletes, I would say, don't go, which is a shame because yeah, that's the thing you. That's the moment you dream of, isn't it? But oh gosh, yeah, I think with both of my games, walking into the opening ceremony for the first time, you know, you walk in, you look around, and you suddenly realise this is what it's about you know and it's just oh my god am I, like am I dreaming or am I have I died and gone to heaven I can't believe little old me is in the Olympic village and I'm here because I've earned it I mean wow there's 10,000 athletes who get to go to the Olympic Games and I'm one of them and I'm just a little kid from Cornwall phenomenal so no I definitely I definitely think you have those moments and just one thing because as I said I've had the privilege of interviewing a few olympians the food hall apparently that's where the real relationship see i see your big smile everybody like could you just explain if you did have a few examples it would be amazing but i heard the magic of when olympians are in the food hall that's where the real relationships happen of like it's about sport like celebrating sport then your own sport um yeah i'd just love to hear your reaction with regards to the food hall experiences yeah, yeah. So it's a funny place. I think particularly us rowers with big appetites, we love we love a food hall. So um, 
Yeah, I guess it, 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 it's an interesting one because as, an, as a rower, you generally don't stay in the village for your competition because the nature of building a rowing lake, it's, first, it's invariably outside of the city. So for both of my games, we stayed in a hotel by the rowing course and then moved into the village for the second week of the game. So we had, in some ways, the best of both worlds. So we were in the village for the second week. So by which point, yeah, you're going around, you're trying everything. Um, I mean, there's because obviously you've got to cater for people from virtually every country of the world there is cuisine from actually every country in the world, you know, so you're kind of Chinese, Indian, um, you know, kind of Vietnamese, Pacific Island, um, that, you know, this like a salad bar that goes on, stretches out into the distance, <laughs> bread, cereal, and it's going 24 hours a day. Then of course, there's the McDonald's, which is the thing all people are just talking about. And it's quite funny because, um, you know, throughout the, we do the second week there, throughout the week, the, the McDonald's gets busier and busier every day as people finish competing. And then they're like, woohoo, we get McDonald's. And then after the closing ceremony, the McDonald's is like 10 people deep at the counter, you know, because everyone goes to the closing ceremony and then comes back into the village and goes to McDonald's. And there's like people passing out burgers, like, you know, crowd surfing over their heads. So, um, I mean, yeah, and it's generally where where you yeah make those relationships, chat to people, make those friendships. And, you know, you might go out, as in kind of socialise out and then come back to the village in the early hours of the morning and go straight to McDonald's and so have a great chat with someone at 4am who's a, I don't know, a judo player from Cameroon and just sit there and share share some nuggets and um, chat about your lives, chat about your sport. And yes, you know, those memories are so special. 100%. I had to say it just because I've learned from other athletes that there were the real cool memories. Final one, and this is just more from an athlete standpoint, from 2008 to then 2012, did you have a break period of going, right, I'm going to have a little break and then I'm going to focus on the next cycle? And the reason I say next cycle, I'm also going to relate to your farming experience, like the next season, you know, when you finish one season of farming, you have a sort of break and then you're back to the next one. When did you get back into the cycle to prepare for 2012? Like from a mindset perspective, then more body perspective of the sport? Yeah, I, I changed quite a lot of things after 2008. 2008 was a really devastating experience for lots of reasons, but the main reason was that we, we didn't win the gold and we were desperate to. So it took me quite a long time really to kind of feel like I'd really processed the fact we'd lost and to understand why we lost from a, from a purely sporting perspective. You know, what what mistakes did we made and had, had we made? And was it that we just got beaten by a better crew? Did we do everything we could have done? Um, and you know, there's so much to think about. And I was only, only 25, you know, it's pretty young, really. I think of 25 as really young now. <laughs> no, it is young. No, just carry on, it is. Um, so it's just a, a lot to process and, and think about. And then obviously I was thinking about the next four years. Do I really want to go through that again? You know, I felt like I put my heart and soul into it in the Beijing cycle and it just come up short, which was just so disappointing. And I thought, I just don't, you know, if you're going to, do elite sport you 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 can't just do it for the good times because the chance the overwhelming chances are you're not going to get a good time you have to be prepared to do it and go into it with your eyes wide open and, and expect that you might spend four years injured or four years not selected you might be teetering on the edge of being dropped from the crew from the, the team you might have your funding cut and I think you've got to be prepared for that. You can't just go into it thinking it's going to be easy because it's not. And you should still feel like, I want to do this, even though all these things might happen. So I just still want to do this, even if I don't get anywhere near the Olympic Games. Um, and I guess 
you know, I had a certain set of questions I wanted to answer in my first Olympic cycle. And after Beijing, I thought, well, I kind of want to see if I can be be that good, but just enjoy it a bit more, really. Can I be as good as I was previously, but just be a bit happier um, and be a bit better at rowing in a crew? Because I still felt like I was at my best when I was on my own, you know? So I wanted to really see, can I be a great crew boat rower? Um, so I thought, okay, I've got, you know, I've kind of got these questions I want to answer. And actually, yeah, I do want to do it again. But equally, I just needed a bit of time on my own. You know, I just need to get out of the, the rowing team. It's a really incredibly well-funded team. You know, we are really lucky to have the setup we do have. But equally, you do feel sometimes like you're a laboratory rat and you feel like you're, um, you know, you're kind of told what to do all the time. and You don't necessarily have the control that you would have had in the in the amateur days. So I, I spoke to the performance director and I said, look, can I just take some time out from the team? You know, take away my funding for three months. I just want to train on my own and I look after myself. And and thankfully, the coach on the performance director were really happy to support me to do that. So I just moved my boat to London. I started training in London. I got a job. So I literally, you know, the kind of old amateur lifestyle. I train in the morning in the dark on my bike, cycle across London, do my job, cycle back to the boat club, do my weights in the evening with all the club rowers, you know, get home at nine o'clock, fall into bed and then start again the next day. And it was it was really refreshing because I'd never done that. You know, I'd, I'd never lived that life. I mean, as a student, yeah, but n- not um, not as an athlete. So it was really refreshing. And I certainly came back from those three months really revved up. You know, I wanted to go back and you learn a lot training on your own. You really do. And I wanted to go and, and put that learning into practice. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't come back better as an athlete. I was I was less fit and I was injured, actually, in the end. But I came back mentally really strong. Um, and then, yeah, I was really committed for the next three years. And I feel like I did achieve that goal. And I did manage to put in a really good team performance and kind of answer that question for myself. So although 2012 didn't turn out as I wanted it to, I still felt like I answered the questions I wanted to answer for myself. We touched on that, the the power of athletes asking internal questions. You don't need to share with me because I think that's quite the uniqueness of it. But for athletes listening in, the importance of asking questions like how long did you give yourself to answer one of those very deep internal questions? You said it took three months to change that new habit of training, which you loved. For me, I listed it going, wow, that's a heck of a daily way of life by early morning session, bike to commute and then awake session, you know, bed at nine, rinse and repeat. But I would love you to just share your thoughts on, because I want to talk about your book shortly, but questions is so powerful from a self-reflection standpoint. So I'll just love your tips on that, really, the power of questions. I think it's, you've kind of got to know what you're getting out of it. You know, why why are you here? Why are you doing this? There's easier ways to earn a living than being an international athlete. But equally, you know, once you're sat in an office, you're not going to go back to the sports field again. So you only get one chance to do it. How how much do you want to commit to it? How long, you know, I would always give myself a time frame of how long I wanted to to, to really go up my rowing for um yeah what you know these are the, I guess the questions I wanted to answer in my book was what you know, what motivates people how do they build their confidence you know when they look in them in the mirror what do they want to see reflected back at them in terms of them as an athlete what's their kind of values what's their identity um you know how do they think how do they how do they perform at their best and also I just think that old thing what do you what have you learned today every day you learn something new about yourself or about other people. Um, I mean, I've got two young kids and I feel like 
every day I have to process so much about because they're growing really fast and they're changing every day and just everything that happens. I think, gosh, what, you know, what's happened today? And it's, it feels like life just bombs through, but equally, particularly as an athlete, I think you need to almost slow down at times and say, what am I learning at the moment? What's, what's going on here? And just try and figure out relative to where you are in your training. What's, what are you getting out of it? What direction are you heading in? You know, where are you now? Where do you want to get to? What have you done today that will help you move forward? You said one big word earlier. You said happiness. And I was like, oh, it's one of my main quotes in your book as well, which I want to touch deep on. You said happiness in elite sport is different to happiness in everyday life. Could you explain what you mean? Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of the time in the book, I was trying to be slightly provocative. <laughs> the thing is, I think... Um... <laughs> I think it's brilliant, though. I love that quote because... Uh, it's different perspectives but I'd love to hear the reason why well I think it's things like pushing yourself at training until you're you until you've got vomit dribbling out of your out of your mouth a lot of athletes would say oh it was a brilliant session because I was sick of myself whereas I think a lot of people would say that that's a horrible session whereas um you know or I don't know in, in rugby maybe playing a match and then being so covered in mud that your own parents wouldn't recognize you rugby players would say oh that was so much fun whereas other people would say that sounds awful then equally I mean I don't know I, I hate shopping someone said to me do you want to have a day's a girl's day out shopping I'd say no that sounds horrible so it's all you know it's all horses for courses isn't it but I think certainly as an athlete you you have to find fun in it because it, it is pretty miserable at times. And it's not to say that you should enjoy every single day, but you know, progress is fun. Getting better at something is fun. Putting pressure on yourself to try and perform, and whether you, you do perform or you don't perform, whether you meet your expectations or not, you know, that's still fun. Um, you know, we used to go on training camp to a flooded lake in um in Portugal. And it was pretty, it was, I mean, it was a lovely, lovely training centre, but it was often quite foggy there. So you'd sometimes feel like you're out rowing on this lake. It was really wide and really long and it had lots of different tributaries and all the countryside all around it looked the same. So a lot of the time you had no idea where you were. Have I been rowing for 2K? Have I been rowing for 20K? I don't really know. In this fog. So it almost have felt a bit like you're in the afterlife, you know, kind of suspended in fog um, doing these mammoth sessions and, and I think you kind of look at that and you could either look at that and say, oh, God, I'm, you know, I'm really tired. I'm really hungry. Training's not going well. This boat's going really badly. And I'm, I don't even know where I am. I could be on a different planet, let alone in, in Portugal. But I think you have to force yourself to say, well, this is fun, you know, and whether it's a gallows humour or not, you have to you have to find enjoyment in everything you're doing. But sometimes you have to kind of tell yourself that it's fun. So is that why self-talk is a great method, should we say, to remind yourself of that fun? Self-talk and also I think the kind of ethos in the team. You know, the team makes it fun, other people make it fun. Um, but I think, yeah, elite sport sometimes, or any any sport, any level, I think you sometimes have a bit of a warped idea as to what's fun or not. Because um, certainly when people ask me about my training regime and I'd say, oh, yeah, you know, we'd be doing three three sessions a day. Each session would be about 90 minutes. And, you know, you'd do this in your first session, then you'd go and do weights. And and if you're talking to somebody who's sporty, they'd be saying, oh, wow, that sounds brilliant. Yeah, that sounds great. If you're talking to somebody who has no interest in sport, they'd be like, this sounds... Oh, and they, they start talking about how much they hated PE lessons and communal showers at school. 
you know so it's just you know everyone's different and that's why it's that's why life's interesting isn't it but um yeah I think sports people have to I think you're quite good at finding fun within whatever what makes your sport unique 100 now I want to sort of change the conversation on today's podcast topic because I really want to talk more about your book because today's podcast topic is like what mindset tools can elite athletes use after their career in elite sport like this is after sport because the reason I share this I've had many athletes and should we say after they retire they can't find the purpose or they can't replace their career in sport from the past to, to applying something new and your book is phenomenal and there's so many lessons athletes experience but maybe can't picture it in applying it into a different walk of life and I'd love your thought process of how you transitioned after rowing, but still loving your sport because it's in your book, but also how athletes can use their skills or memories from their sport into a new direction of life, but maybe not at the elite level of competing. I know it's a big question, but for me, this is a real passion that athletes have a purpose after sport, even if their identities changed. Well, their body shape changes, you know, which, which is the other thing. And um, I think when you retire from sport, everything changes of course it does but if you've been doing your sport since you were 10 that's a much harder transition to make than if like me you know you didn't find your sport until you were 17 and I didn't take it that seriously until I was 20 21 so you know I already had perfectly normal teenage life behind me of all the things you do when you're a teenager you know smoking at school and you know drinking on the beach with my mates or or whatever like all of that totally normal university degree totally normal and then I found rowing whereas if you've only been you know at the gymnast since you were 10 and all of your education and your degree has been kind of put on hold a bit to pursue your sporting goals actually that makes a huge difference in how you transition so I think I'm really really fortunate to have found rowing and I, I you know I think that's one of the best things about rowing is it is a is a kind of tertiary education sport. Um, so how do, but how do people transition? Well, I, I think there's there is so much support out there now, far more than there used to be. You know, football clubs and and national governing bodies will have dedicated people to help people trans transition. I think, but I think there's a few things. There's number one, understanding your skill set in the workplace. You know, and realizing that you might have never been in an office, but you've still practice strategy planning you know maybe not budgeting but um you know you'll you'll, you'll still go, gone through a lot of processes that businesses go through um but all the soft skills you have really really transfer so the ability to work in a team um and the ability to be really comfortable with feedback and i, I something i really struggle with now in the outside world that you just don't get high quality feedback ever um you know you think about in rowing I'd, I'd finish a session and I'd get off the water and my coach would first of all give me verbal feedback as to kind of um how what he saw you know his sort of subjective view then you'd get video analysis and then you might get biomechanical data and then you might get um biological data like you might have some of a lactic acid test or um a I don't know, you might be monitoring your heart rate or whatever, or your speed, or there'll be some numbers connected to your session. So you basically get four types of data when you get off the water. And this is after every single session. Whereas now, 
have I done a good job today? Have I not done a good job today? I don't know. You know, and people, I don't know, I feel like in sometimes in the outside world, people don't like giving feedback because they don't like receiving feedback. So they'll often not, and let's, you know, let's call it criticism. People don't like being criticised. They don't like to give criticism. You know, one of my big, biggest bugbears these days is the amount of ghosting that goes on. You know, people don't want to get back to you because they don't want to give you bad news. So they just don't get back to you at all. I think, I'm a big girl. I can deal with it. This is business. Just tell me we don't want to move forward. Fine. I, I don't mind. I can I can deal with it. You know, I've lost an Olympic gold. Like, I can deal with life. It's okay. But I think in sport, because how you've done is so quantifiable and it's so obvious and everything you do is so surrounded with, like I've described, subjective data and objective data, that you're constantly getting basically like a list of 10 bullet points to how you can improve. And But that's what you want. You want to be as good as you can be. Well, now in, in the work I do now, I want to be as good as I can be. But it's harder, it's almost impossible to have any objective data. It's harder to get subjective information and people won't give it to you. So it's, you know, it's much harder to get feedback and information about how to improve, which really frustrates me. Um, but you just have to get used to it. 100%, but I love what you said there. You've sort of got, I've got other ideas coming through. And one of them is just from an athlete perspective, and it's used a lot, but it's so true. Pressure, like the one thing that when I learn from all the different athletes on my show is they look at pressure in a different perspective. I'm just curious of how you've coped with pressure as a rower has made you cope with pressure in a workforce environment and how this, how athletes can leverage this when they're in those working environments. Well, I, I think you, as an athlete, because everything you do is dictated by your outcome. So everything you do is geared up to, this is going to make you better on the 5th of August, 2024 or whenever the Paris Olympic final will be. So I think whatever you do, you know, you can visualise that straight line between today and the 5th of August, 2024, 2,000 metres, six-lane rowing race. Um, and so if, 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 all, if all your efforts are geared towards that, I think you then take that attitude into business where you say, okay, so we want to, I don't know, change our strategy around pay-per-click advertising, for example. Okay, so let's reflect on our business goals or our marketing KPIs. I want there's got to be a link here, and we've got to understand how to monitor the link and how to monitor the impact. And obviously, in, in in business, there's also you know not everything is going to have that really quantifiable impact. For example, you know you might do some client entertaining that won't necessarily lead to an immediate sale, but equally, you have. I think everyone in the whole business needs to know what's our purpose. And what am I doing today that impacts on that purpose? Or how can I support other people to better impact that purpose? And I think you need to know where you are. Because I think every, you know, every function business is doing its own thing. And do people always have that real understanding of how can I help other people? Because we're all trying to achieve this. So certainly when it comes to pressure, I think athletes probably are quite cool as a cucumber, really, because you know, we've seen there, we've done it, and we have strategies to perform under pressure. You know, people understand how to break down a journey into its constituent parts, how to stay focused on the here and now, 
Um, you know, we would always in our sport, we would say one stroke at a time, as in a rowing stroke. I'm sure every sport has its version of that phrase, one stroke at a time. You just stay in the here and now. Don't think about the enormity of what you're trying to do because it's not helpful. Just think, how can I execute my role to the best of my ability? But also, you just got to trust yourself. You know, if not me. Can we talk on the self-belief? Because you said self-belief right from the get-go of this conversation. How has self-belief supported you as an athlete, but also supported you after rowing? Supported you as an author now, having that self-belief. Supported you what you're doing at laps, which I want to touch on. But how has self-belief has been a tool from an intrinsic characteristic supported you after rowing? Because I think it's I think it's kind of fundamental to everything you do. You know, what is, what is self-belief? I mean, it's, it's confidence by another word, but it's it's basically just saying that I have the capacity to do this thing, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. But and I would I would you know I, was, I would say that theoretically I can do this. You know, theoretically I'm good enough. I'm good enough to win this race, or I'm good enough to be selected into this group. In theory, it doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but I can do it. I have the capacity. So if someone sent me out to go and order a meal in France, I wouldn't be able to. I cannot speak French. I do not have the capacity to do this. If I go away and spend a year learning French, I might struggle. I might, oh gosh, in the moment, forget how to say, you know, please can I have fish and chips or whatever. But theoretically, I can do it. So I think just having that belief that I do have the knowledge, I do have the tools. I'm not saying I'm the finished product. I'm not saying I'm the best in the world at this, but I can deliver what I need to deliver when it matters. And I think, yeah, just having almost that, having that belief in your head, to me, that that's how you define self-belief. You know, so my sport of rowing, I think I have the ability to win the world championships. I think I can be good enough. doesn't mean I'm going to. There's a heck of a lot of good rowers out there who also think the same. But I think if the stars align, I could do it. This is not an impossible proposition. Um, you know, if you're building a business, I think I could reach a million pound turnover by the end of year five or whatever it is. It doesn't mean I'm go necessarily going to do it. Um, there's a million other things that might happen between now and then. But based on what I know today, the tools I have, I think I can. And I think just having that conversation with yourself at the start will make a huge difference. Because then if that belief infuses every step of everything you do, chances are it's going to be more convincing. You know, you're going to have more confidence in your decisions. Other people have more confidence in you. And everything at the end of the day will be a bit better. 100%. So when was the moment when you said to yourself, I think I can write a brilliant book, Mind Games. I want you to share what it's all about. But honestly, it's a phenomenal read, everybody. Probably the most in-depth book I've read. I've read quite a few like sport-related books on all the different components of, like you said earlier, being the best version, the best athlete they can be. When did that idea come into your head to be an author and write this book? So did you like it? Oh, you know I did. I rang you <laughs> right afterwards how amazing it was. And I'll tell you why, just really quickly. I want you to talk about it. What I love about it is you had a range of athletes from triathlon athletes, rug players like Brian Moore, um, Steve Peters, the psychologist, you had all these components um, in it. And Catherine Granger of her experience of like her mindset of doing five Olympics, which is just like such inspiration of saying that. But I'm just curious for you as the author of what you were trying to achieve the book 
I'm just seeing it because I've read it. And honestly, I have to reread certain chapters again because it was so in-depth, like intrinsic and extrinsic motivation for you. You're very intrinsic, which is you do it for the love of the sport. Like right at the beginning, you said you just love the joys, being on your own, beautiful surroundings. But others, it was to win. It was status. So there, there's a little insight of really what the book's about. But I would love to hear your thoughts of what inspired you to write this great book. What was the point at which I thought I could write a book? I think when I wrote, um, so as part of the, I mean, I was very lucky. I had a publisher contract in place before I started writing it. So I know a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll write the whole thing pretty much and then get get the nod for publisher. But that wasn't, that wasn't my experience. So I had to write a sample chapter before they would agree to it. So it was 6,000 words or something and, so my my editor just said to me, you know, just write about what you're interested in, write about what you're passionate about, write about what you know about. So I read a few books of a similar type and just tried to get a feel for, for a style because I'd done quite a lot of journalism up until that point. But what you don't need to have in sports journalism is you don't need to be a narrator. You know, you just, you're a reporter, so you're just reporting the facts and, you know, reporting the analysis, whereas... Um, I was a big William Thackeray fan and I kept thinking Vanity Fair and the, the narrator is almost a character in his or her own right. So I thought I need to have a style, a tone, because I, I am a voice in this book in a way I'd, I'd never been in, in anything else I've written. So I read yeah quite a few other books. One of my um, one of my friends, Tim Andrew Harkness, had written a book about data. Um, so nothing to do with sport, but um, she and I had done a few bits of journalism together and I really loved the way she'd written her book which I guess is quite quite similar again it has a very strong strong voice so I thought this is how I want to write and then I sketched out the chapter of just again picking out the things I was really interested in in sport understanding why people do it what's their what's their reason for for, for wanting to you know kick a rugby ball or or pull an oar through the water a few other things about what I wanted to cover and then at the end of that chapter I thought just want to write this book now. I'm just desperate to write the book. You know, I just really hope Bloomsbury agree that I should write the book. And luckily they did. Um, and then, yeah, I just got stuck in, just contacted everybody I knew in sport and said, please, can you let me interview you? And most of them, luckily, said yes. Yeah, I'm going to talk about Brian Morwan because I thought he was fascinating. And, and like as a little case study in the book, because I've, I've already given quotes to everybody already because it was so relevant in your career. But there, there's one I loved where he said he was so loose and it was the final game in the rugby lines where he just knew he was ready. And he actually said he sat down during the warm up and they end up winning everybody just by two points. And like the British and Irish Lions is a big thing in, in the men and women's game. But Mark Bring it is like very historic. Um, but I just remember reading that, that he knew before the game from a confidence standpoint that they knew they were going to win. But at the end of the day, it was only two points, which is a very small margin. I was like, did you ever, as yourself as an athlete, but also interviewing these other athletes of sometimes less is more. If you know you're ready, you're ready. I, I just would love to, because I want people to listen to this with if they're doing an interview, like going for a job, or if they've done so much preparation in the background, you don't want to over kill it from a physical and mental like mindset perspective so I see your body language nodding but it's one of my favorite ones of being confident in your ability but actually doing less in the process yeah and this 
But this is something that one of my first rowing coaches, a chap called Adrian Cassidy, who coached me at Cambridge University, he was always really hot on. He'd say, you know, and he would use that phrase, less is more. You know, he would turn, we would turn up to training, he'd say, what do you want to do today? You know, what session do you want to do? And we'd be like, you're the coach, you're meant to tell us what to do. And he'd say, but yeah, what do you, what do you feel like doing? You know, and, um, and I mean, not every day, but on occasion, he would just say, right, kids, over to you. You know, what, what do you want to do? Um and certainly it's something that a few other people said to me in the book that almost as they got more experience, they occasionally had the assurance to say, do you know what? I'm knackered. I've had enough. I'm just going to go home today. I'm not going to do another session. Um, and I, I kind of like that about sport, that, you know, that decision making, just knowing your body so well, you know when to say I'm cooked or I need to do this. Um, and I think that's, you know, that that is a mark of reaching a certain level of you know experience if you like but just assurance and self-confidence just to know like I'm happy we're in a good place you know we don't need to do any more and certainly in sport I think people always because the sort of people who become athletes are not shirkers you know they are hard hard workers so I think your instinct is to push 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 I'm going to work harder than anyone else that's not always the right thing to do you know, but it takes a lot of confidence to say, this is too much. I actually interviewed Brian Moore on his birthday. So he was very kind. Yeah, he was very good, good with his time. And I only realised it was his birthday. I happened to be reading The Times on the way to his house in London. And it said, you know, birth, deaths and marriages. You know, it's famous birthdays in the newspaper. Um, happy birthday, Brian Moore. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm waiting my way to his house. And uh, yeah, it was very kind of him. Um, but uh, I think it was like the only day he knew he was going to be at home. So Phenomenal insights. Just to be clear about how this book is, Annie interviewed so many different athletes and then she inserted it into the different chapters we'd like. And this is one more theme I'd love to talk about because for me, it's in my own personal development, I'm doing so much more. Like I'm going to show you now. I've got one of my sort of high-performance journals with the gospel reflection. And this was from Ken Way. He said, reflection is absolutely a diet for champions. Can we talk about the power of reflection, not just from past memories, but reflection in general and mindfulness too? And how is this like a component of having a, a champion mindset, but just having a good mindset in general in the way we show up in the world day in, day out? Yeah, yeah. So Ken, again, was really, really generous with his time. So he was the sports psychologist attached to Leicester City Football Club when they won the Premier League. So, I mean, you know, this kind of proper once in a million experience and he you know he told me all about it all of which is in the book um and he was I mean he was absolutely fascinating but um yeah so he he was a bit of a happiness crusade he said one of the reasons we won is we were just the happiest team in the league obviously there's there's far more to it than that but he really picked out happiness as being this key value for the the you know the less city guys in that year um but reflection yeah I mean you know, it it is so important, isn't it? Whether it's writing things down, whether it's talking to people, you know, talking therapy, whether it's, you know, recording your thoughts, whether it's hosting a podcast, whatever it is, it's so important just to talk and to externalise and to, you know, have different people enter your bubble and talk to you, you know, different experiences and, and understand how all that other people manage situations in other walks of life. And, and certainly I think, um, I think it's not something I've, I've ever been that good at, self-reflection, but I think rowing has, has taught me that 
it's it's such an important part of how we learn. You know, if you can make a mistake and then really just spend a few hours thinking about that mistake from every angle and really trying to unpick how it happened and why it happened, actually, you're probably not going to make the same mistake twice. Whereas, like you've already said, your dad got done twice by the same speed camera once on a road that we both know well. I mean, what a fool. But, you know, that's somebody who didn't sit down and have any reflection after that first speed camera. Um, you know, if we, if we never if we never reflect, then we're never going to learn from our successes. We're never going to learn from our setbacks. And thus, we're never going to move on. 100%. Now, I want to tailor it now to laps. Like, I'm really grateful that you're working it because, I'm again, it's all about helping players after sport. Could you just share what laps is about and the real purpose as well? relating to the work you do there? Yeah, so LAPS was set up, uh, it was co-founded by Robbie Simpson, who's a former professional football player. I, I actually think I watched him play many years ago. He was at Exeter City and I lived in Exeter. So, um, And he founded it in conjunction with another guy who's a recruitment expert. And the idea was, the vision was really to provide a careers platform for elite athletes. So to help elite athletes both plan for life after sport and then when, when the time came to... Um, be able to work with employers to provide opportunities for athletes because we all know that most job vacancies ask for experience in a similar role, which is one of, you know, which is a real frustration for me because I think, can you not take a chance on someone who really impresses you but doesn't have experience? Yeah, in the short term, you're going to be holding their hand, but in the long term, potentially this person could absolutely fly. But if you're just advertising for a like-for-like replacement, you know, you're never going to, you'll never know. So, um, yeah, so we work with employers who are happy to take that, you know, take more of an investment in their staff and recruit some really great ex-athletes into their teams. That's amazing. Can I can I ask what you specialise in, in with that? And also how, how you relate that to your own experience. That's why I love you that you're there, just because you're an athlete. You understand what you've said, because I, I do agree with what you're saying, like skills can always be developed, but those raw characteristics that athletes have experience at the peak level you can't replicate that you really can't like I only learned that through what all my special guests and it a little bit rubs off to me but very small amount but I take every bit of gold dust of learning but I'm being really truthful now from an athlete standpoint they've been in environments or experiences that not many working workforce from a certainly from a pressure standpoint when we're talking Olympic Games World Championships or even pinnacle of that individual sport um, but I'd love to hear what you do and how you share your personal experience and then also help athletes at the same time go through this transition. Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm head of marketing. So I do a role, I play a role in um, collecting stories from athletes who have transitioned or, you know, whether that was six months ago or six years ago or or longer, Um we try to build up a bit of a content bank with what they do and then obviously show that to employers and, and hopefully change their, you know, change their talent acquisition practices, which is a real privilege because I get to chat to athletes, you know, from every walk of life, doing every kind of role and also with every kind of experience. You know, you've got people with just um, devastating stories of I was on the verge of making it and then, you know, ruptured my ACL through to people who say, yeah, I did it, I had a great career, but I gave it five years and it just wasn't for me. You know, it, I just didn't enjoy it enough. So I I moved on. I'm still really happily engaged in that sport, but I just didn't want to do it as a full-time professional, which 
I kind of love that because also I think that's probably different the image people have of elite athletes that we're all desperate to keep going for as long as we can and you know we're eking it out into our mid-40s but the reality is yes some people are some people never want to retire and that's that's fine nothing wrong with that but there's also a lot of people who who do it for a few years and then say you know with their eyes wide open this just isn't for me this lifestyle the stress the uncertainty you know the fact your finances are kind of up and down year to year um a lot of it feels out of your control or you know potentially there's sports where drug taking is probably still quite prevalent which must be really demotivating for clean athletes in those sports a lot of them look around and say i just don't want this this isn't for me i don't like the travel i don't like the competition whatever it is and i love that i love the just the variety of people who come through elite sport so i feel quite privileged being able to um market what we do with people like that i'm going to put you on the spot now because you know i like to test marketing skills how they do it i know you said you're big into the journalism but what have you enjoyed about being a marketer well, it's a new set of skills, really. I mean, writing is is writing. I think I've always always been able to write, but particularly, you know, every day there's a new social media platform or WhatsApp changes the way it does things or whatever. And I think as a marketer, you've got to get up to speed really quickly. And I definitely am very conscious that I'm not in my 20s. So, um, you know, I feel like young people just use tech much more intuitively than, you know, people probably over the over their age of the mid-30s. Um but yeah, it's fun. You know, it, it's really good fun understanding how you can things across to people, how you can attract people's attention um, and how you can make it seem quite organic as well. I think the best marketing feels natural and organic. You know, the worst marketing just looks really cheesy and salesy. So, again, I think it's just, you know, you find your way of doing it. You find your tone of voice and your kind of brand identity. And then hopefully if it's a product you believe in, it's quite easy to shout about. I know you mentioned the storytelling already of the work you do, but for athletes listening in, how important is it to just be authentic with their personal brand and being proud of who they already are? And that's a big question, but I think that's really important for them. One, going to laps, because I know you have some great resources, but also how they can utilize their, let's keep it simple, LinkedIn page to create that attention of a new opportunity. That makes sense. Yeah, um, and and athletes, I think, do a lot of athletes do it really well. I mean, they're kind of content creators more than sports people these days. I think some of them, and uh, no, I think I think you know, young people are really savvy on these kind of sites. Um, But and also, I think athletes are much happier talking about the causes that are important to them. You know, whether it's climate change or mental health or you know, cyberbullying, whatever it is, and um, you know, I think they're much more in control of of how they do things and their images, you know, um, and the way they go about things because they have a platform that 20 years ago they never had. And actually, I think most athletes are really, really passionate about their sport, really passionate about representing their country or their club. You know, it means so much to them. And I think they use their platform invariably really positively. I mean, yeah, you see people who just seem to want to do something and get a freebie or a free pair of trainers out of it but they're so limited it's mainly people who are just incredibly um thoughtful and have a real sense of social good 100 percent. i think there's many athletes like the one that when you're talking like that it's like marcus rashford with the work he's doing you know exactly. things like that exactly. who do it's beyond the sport and giving back yeah and he's great because he's great because he's so high profile but there'll be so many 
just like him, not as high profile, doing, you know, sim- having similar kind of causes they really care about. And now they have a platform to, to shout about it. Absolutely. But Annie, out of interest, like what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now? Um, what have I enjoyed? I mean, probably the people, really. You know, the people, the experiences, those moments when you just have to pinch yourself and think, how did this happen to me? You know, and um, I think it's that old thing. And I saw an interview with Johnny Wilkinson, you know, the Rugby World Cup hero, England's rugby winning, uh, Rugby World Cup winning fly half, where he said, he said, as I get older, I enjoy it more and more. Like I feel more and more proud of the things I did. And I feel the same. As I, as I get older, I feel more and more proud of what I've what I achieved in my rowing career. Because um, I think you forget, the rubbish times and the frustrations and the injuries and the setbacks and you just remember the good times you know like really selective memory so so yeah I'm now a very 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 keen amateur cricketer so this is where I'm pouring most of my most of my um competitiveness and sporting enthusiasm so it's nice to not think about rowing and try a totally totally different sport amazing I well that could be another conversation but look I've really enjoyed this conversation I'd like to finish with an inspirational one and you've shared so many examples, but also life lessons as well. But I want to touch back to that self-belief because I want people to take action with this. What three tips would you give to the listener to believe in themselves more and what they're currently doing, either in sport or in business? Like what three tips would you give from a self-belief standpoint? I think, first of all, just back your decisions. You know, don't a bit like, do you remember the old Choose Your Own Adventure books that I used to read a lot as a kid and they were dreadful don't, you know, put your finger in the page to go back and choose a different path if the one you've chosen, you know, meant that you died. Just make a decision and just pack it. Just make that the right decision and just run with it. And then, yeah, maybe you look back and you say, OK, that was the wrong thing to do. But chances are, if you make a decision to back yourself, it'll turn out to be the right decision. Um, secondly, just know, be aware of your network. You know, have really good people around you. Um, somebody once said to me, some people are radiators and some people are drains. You know, just find radiators, find radiators in your life and and spend time with them. And if you've got people within your network, within your circle, always get you down a bit. Just don't expose yourself to them. Um, And my third tip is buy mind games from all good retailers because it's a great read, according to my mum. Oh, and me too. No, 100%. I agree with the (laughs) third one. Out of interest, Annie, how can people... Firstly, grab a copy of your book, but also interact with you on social media. Like, where are the best places to go? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, and that's it. Great. To all the listeners listening in, there'll be that LinkedIn link and links to Annie's book. And it's been a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Great. What a fantastic way to conclude season eight on the Sports Crib podcast. It was a real joy to have Annie as a podcast special guest on the show. And without a doubt, grab a copy of her book, Mind Games. You will see the real joy, not just reading it, but also how it can influence your personal development. It really is a phenomenal book. I really mean that. The links are in the podcast description. But there's one thing I want to touch on which resonated me during the podcast chat. And it was a phrase that Annie said during the conversation of progress is fun. And I think this is really important. Like she said, relating to her rowing career, there were components where if she went back in time, 
she would have focused on the progress and having fun and enjoying some of the moments than focusing on the outcome. But that's easy said than done, right? You probably can relate that to your sports career development or even playing certain sports. But with regards to that phrase, progress is fun, it's something that is going to be a trigger word for me in the work I do, that despite the challenges, the ups and downs, it's really focusing on the progress with a fun attitude with regards to the direction I'm going. And it really leads to the second point, which is another big takeaway for me, is backing yourself with your decisions. This is so, so important. And I'm so glad she mentioned it right at the end with regards to how to improve your own self-belief with backing yourself in your decisions. And for me, this is what's really important because when you back yourself with a decision, with that self-belief, without a doubt, you're on the right path to the direction and the outcome you're trying to achieve too. So I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast chat firstly, but also this season. I want to personally thank you for listening to season eight and please make sure to leave an honest review and subscribe to the show. Like now there's over 350 episodes. I know it will support you with regards to your personal development. And most importantly, I will be having season nine to kickstart 2024 which i'm super excited planning right now for the next season but in the meantime thank you for listening keep being awesome apply all these podcasts to your sports career development now and make it happen now as always at the end of each podcast episode i'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker and he said if we never reflect we're never going to learn from our successes we're never going to learn from our setbacks and we're never going to move forward and develop 